Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast about culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about Kickstarter. We're going to try out a new short 15-minute episode format, and we'd love to hear from you once we're done whether you liked it or not. Stephen, tell us about Kickstarter. So I'm really fascinated by Kickstarter because I think it's a really interesting way that bands can fund specific projects uh, and specific instances of um, commerce, for lack of a better term, that um, strung together can help build or even fully sustain a career. And there's a variety of really interesting things about Kickstarter as a company and as a um, ethical funding agency and as just as a really cool thing um, that we're going to be looking at today. I, for my part, am really interested in Kickstarter for things that have nothing to do with bands for the most part, because Kickstarter is just that broad. It is included funding in the order of millions of dollars for massive video game development companies, and it is included funding for one-off art projects that cost a few hundred dollars to paint something somewhere in some city. It does all of these things, and we think it does them pretty well. Yeah, it has a variety of categories as food, comics, uh, all sorts of different things, theater. So it's not just a musician's uh, paradise, although it can be a musician's paradise. So one of the reasons we're talking about Kickstarter right now is because it just passed one billion, with a B, billion dollars in contributed money. Um, now, only 869 million of that was successful money, um, and 119 million of that was money that was contributed that wasn't actually um, successful, so in success, unsuccessful campaigns. Um, and then about $30 million of it is currently live in projects that are running right now. For any listeners who aren't familiar with Kickstarter's basic model, Kickstarter says, here, you put up some promotional material for your project and hype it up and get people to pledge to it. And you have a set amount of time. And if at the end of that amount of time, enough people have pledged money to your project, then we charge them and you get the money and you get to make your project. And they get something tangible in terms of a reward for it. So you are kickstarting whatever project that is. Again, whether that's a new album for your band or a multi-million dollar video game, whatever it is, you're using the crowd to fund your model. Now, if you get to the end of that funding period and you don't have enough pledged, nobody gets charged. So when Steven talks about those $119 million in unsuccessful dollars, that's money that people pledged that, well, that project got to the end of its funding period and hadn't made its funding limits, and so no one got charged any money at all. The creators were sad that they didn't get to make their thing, but people were mostly out time in promotional efforts and not so much out of actual money, which is one of the real genius elements of Kickstarter. 
Yeah, and there are alternate sorts of crowdfunding models that have variable campaigns like Indiegogo and things like this. But Kickstarter is built solely on the idea that if you can get to this threshold, be it 7,000, 17,000, or 70,000, or whatever, then you can successfully make this project, and then you can contribute um, whatever it is that you're contributing to society to society effectively. So uh, what's really interesting is that some some criticism of Kickstarter can come from the fact that there are a lot of unsuccessful projects. There have been 57,716 successful projects and 74,777 unsuccessful projects. I'm getting all of these funds, these stats from Kickstarter themselves. Uh, we'll link to this whole stat page in the liner notes of this episode. Um, but so there have been 74,000 unsuccessful projects. However, 12,000 of them, almost 13,000 of them, have 0% funded, which means that 13,000 people just made a Kickstarter project and just kind of expected that people would be roving around magically throwing money at various projects. But they didn't even tell their mom and their dad about it. Because yeah. let's be honest, everybody gets the pity pity pledge from their mom and dad. I'll give you $5, Johnny. Hey, These hey, people whoa, didn't even do whoa. that. Pity pledge? That's a love pledge, my friend. <laughs> love. Kickstarter notes that 80% of projects that raise more than 20% of the goal. So if you got a fifth of the way to your goal, again, whether that goal was a million dollars or a hundred dollars, if you got 20% of that, 80% of the time you succeeded. A huge part of the curve is these people that are in the 0%. And then there's also this 1% to 20% funded, which means you kind of got some interest, but not enough to really get any momentum. Certainly nobody was out there saying, hey, I just contributed to this Kickstarter. You should too, because it's awesome. Yeah. So if you 60, got past that, most people make it. Yeah, 60,000%. or 60,000%. 60, <laughs> mm. That's a lot of percents. Uh, I mean, 60,000 of the 74,000 unsuccessful projects were in the 1% to 20% funded. So you're right. It's a big jump from this is a thing that people might want to suddenly it's, oh, this is a thing that people want. So that's that's part of the um, the weird numbers of Kickstarter is that if you can get past this magical 20 percent, that kind of ensures, you know, there is a sufficient amount of interest based around this. And what's interesting is that that 20 percent is the same for if you're running in a thousand dollar campaign or a hundred thousand dollar campaign. If you can get past, you know, 20 percent, then it's, you know, it's it's a thing. One of the things I find interesting looking at these stats is that the vast majority of projects sit in this 1,000 to a dollar under 10,000 raised. And if you look around at Kickstarter, a lot of times you get these high-profile projects. You'll have a celebrity use it. You'll have a big, yeah. You'll have a big game studio come in and say, "We're going to make the sequel to a video game from a decade ago," and the gaming community says, "Yeah." And, you know, there's a million dollars on the table in 24 hours or things like that. But actually, the vast majority of projects aren't like that. They're in this one to $10,000 range. And 
Well, a lot of those that I've seen are in the one to $2,000 range and Kickstarter doesn't break it down that far. But it's interesting that a lot of what's going on is not massive hype projects, but little projects that somebody puts together because they want to make something, you know, basically the actual idea of Kickstarter. Hey, I want to make something. I can't fund it myself, but I've got this whole network of friends, family, acquaintances, social media followers, maybe actual fans if I'm a small band or a small artist of some sort. Hey, will you guys help me make this thing happen? And then you'll get an album or a copy of the painting or the first run of the printing of this book that I want to publish, etc. And these people are doing it. They're raising $8,000 and making their book and people are getting their books out of it and the artist is making a little money. Or at least getting to make her art. Or at least getting to make, you know, a run of things, some of which then could later be sold. Right. And so that's one of the things that we've talked a lot about in, in the past, um, just you and me, is about this, this idea that Kickstarter really kind of looks back towards this model of patronage to where it's, it's not just like, hey, I'm going to make a thing and then hopefully some people will want to buy it, but... People saying, yes, this is a good idea. This is something we want. We will contribute money to this. Now, in old school patronage, it was somebody saying, yes, I will fund everything. But I am the king and I have all the money. Yeah. Therefore, I will fund all the things right. that I like and stab the ones I don't. That, that is a fair assessment of medieval history. But um, instead, now it's this crowdfunded sort of there are a lot of people who think this is a good idea, and so we're going to contribute 10 or 20 or 50 bucks. Um, Kickstarter doesn't have this particular stat list on this page, but I have read in other places that the average Kickstarter give is $25, which is not a lot of money, but if you get, you know, if you get 10 people, that's 250 If you get 100 that's $2,500. And that's, you know, you're moving into, like, substantial amounts of money at that point, so you know, getting this sort of, of critical mass behind a project is, you know, really valuable um, and really can make things happen in ways that wouldn't otherwise be achieved. Like you might right. have to get big label support or, you know, big publishing support or, you know, you might have to do it on the side instead of being able to take a month off and, like, code your game or whatever. So that's something that I think is really valuable patronage-wise. It's sort of the internetization, if you'll allow me to coin a terrible word, the internetization, and really what we mean by that is the democratization of patronage, which is a model that for the most part had disappeared. You know, the last century has been dominated by market-oriented structures, and this is still a market, but it's structured very differently from the general make a product, try to sell it, and hope desperately that you can recoup whatever costs you sunk in in the first place. All of a sudden, we're flipping that on its head and going back to the model where you pay for the art up front, which is how it was done throughout much of the Renaissance and early modern period. You know, famously Bach, as in J.S. Bach, the great musician, he was a court musician and a church musician, and his job was to write music that he was commissioned every week. Much of Mozart's music was on commission from really wealthy people, etc. And they would say, we want you to build this thing. And now you're mashing that together with the Otaire model, as we talked a little bit about last week, of the artist who has this vision. 
and says, I want to make this rather than someone coming to him and saying, I want you to make this and then sprinkling in some internet magic by which of course, I mean the ability of lots and lots of people to hear about things, even people you would never have met in quote real life. Yeah. A network effect. Exactly. And saying, okay, now this author or painter or songwriter or video game designer or comedian or what have you has this vision he wants to bring to life and now he can ask the world if the world thinks this is a good idea now this has some downsides compared to a pure patronage model but it also has some upsides the downsides of course are if it's not a populist sort of thing you may have a hard time getting funding for it if it's expensive you probably have your niche crowd but getting outside of that is going to be hard on the other hand you might be able to reach your niche crowd when there was not a chance in the world you could have done that under the market model, and probably not much chance, especially if it's something avant-garde, that you were going to catch the attention of a high-powered or particularly wealthy patron. Right. If you're only looking for approximately $5,000 or $4,000 or $6,000, which is right where you know Kickstarter lives in terms of the majority mm-hmm. of the projects— you know, you can probably find people who are who are up for, you know, contributing that amount of money. If you've already got an established network, and you've already got some social media um, and some offline media and some, you know, offline connections. You know, if you've if you're part of a scene that's working on stuff, this can be a good way to kind of pool all of that cred that you've built up and really make something and kind of circumvent some of the big structures around like, well, we don't know if that's going to be profitable or not. Right. Um, Someone can say, I don't care if it's going to be profitable. I want to hear it. Yep. Here you go. Yeah. And it also circumvents having to make a nonprofit, which takes a year or more. Right. And so it's this really interesting, like middle ground between this is something we can do. This is something that we want to give money to. And now this is something that's possible. What's really interesting to me is that in addition to being like this democratizing sort of um, company, Kickstarter runs itself in a really admirable way, at least to my definition of admirable. Um, They're a small company. They have less than 100 employees. Um, They have um, insurance for all their employees. And most interestingly in tech, they don't have any venture capital left. They had some at the beginning, but I think that's um, cleared and done now, according to some things I've read. Um, and they don't plan on going public, and they don't plan on you know becoming a giant profit-making machine. And their margins are not very high in terms of you know making profit. Um, but it's a company that makes a good thing, treats its employees well, as far as I've read, um, and just does good. We'd like to see some more of these. Yeah, yeah that's an understatement. <laughs> in, in particular, the, the fact that they're not interested in going public or being bought out, per some of our conversations in previous weeks, these are a big deal to us. They've got a well-established business plan that's making them enough money to do well by their employees. And they're growing. And they're growing, but they're not trying to explode. And they don't want to get bought out. And they don't want to go public. They just want to do what they're doing and do it well. They're really walking the line, at least so far, that we want to see tech companies and really all companies walk, which is do well by your customers, 
do well by your employees, and do your best as you're going to make the world a little bit better a place. In this case, by letting artists do their thing and enabling artists to do their thing, whereas maybe they couldn't before. Yeah, it's a really kind of benevolent, social justice-y sort of thing. Um, Yancey Strickland, one of the founders of Kickstarter, has called it ideological. Um, it's a really kind of grounded sort of thing to say, we want these certain things. We think these certain things are good. We don't want these other things. We think these other sorts of things are bad. And being a, a company and a well-respected one that kind of bucks this trend that we want to have massive profits and shareholders and all of that, that's a really big deal in tech right mm -hmm. now. I think that's really an interesting thing that, you know, I would want to work for Kickstarter because that's the sort of company that I feel has both stability and the ability to keep, you know, moving with their market. So if they have mm -hmm. something change, um, then they can just do it. They don't have to go through, you know, quarterly losses or, you know, shareholders <laughs> like turning on them or like oustings of CEOs. Like none of that has to happen. If they see something going wrong, they just fix it. I, I think it's most interesting to see that given how economics oriented the whole company is. I was listening to an episode of Freakonomics a while back and he was interviewing a guy who's actually been an economic advisor to the Vatican and other things. And he noted what? that... The, the Vatican it, has an economic advisor? It does. Fascinating. It was a great episode. I'll link that in the show notes as well. The very interesting thing that the episode came to, however, which I just found dead on, was the recognition that most economists don't talk much about ethics, moral actions. They're they're usually content to characterize things in descriptive terms. Utilitarianism. Than, exactly. And most businesses in the tech sector have largely tended to operate the same way. It's, well, it works, right? And it's making money. And money equals great. yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> and to be willing to step back and say, well, maybe not. Maybe we could make more money if we did that thing over there, but it wouldn't be good. Money equals maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe what is more important is the way we treat people and the things we show that we value in the way we conduct ourselves. And I find that extraordinarily admirable, and I would love to see a lot more of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating shift between what is a company for to make money and what is a company for to do a certain thing in a good way. And it sounds, it sounds very, you know, not monumental, right? Like, right. But it's, it's a fundamental change that has, you know, approximately 250 years of, of capitalist history behind it. Um, mm -hmm. the, the tiny little change between this is a thing that makes money and this is a thing that does something in the world. Right. And it's worth note that the history of capitalism as an idea is this. This was the idea of capital. It's let's get a bunch of people together to pool their money to allow people to do a thing. That's what the word capital meant. And as is often the case, capitalism became synonymous with greed and self-interest generally replaced public interest. And we've seen this wax and wane over the centuries. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, this is a return to 
the really great innovations that have driven much of modern market economies in good ways while recognizing that greed can get in the way and that you have to actively be avoiding it. And that if you're not actively avoiding it, you're going to break things. Yeah. And so taking your company in a direction that does actively avoid it and seeking not to break things, it's really a return to the roots of the good ideas that are there in capitalism, but doing it in a way that is about the people and recognizing that the money is there as a means to an end. is It is not itself the end toward which all the other means are driving. Right. Kind of splitting the distance between, you know, uh, socialism and capitalism, these two giant poles that kind of hang specter-like over the, the, wow, that's a lot of mixed metaphors at once. <laughs> We're going to, I'm going to re, I'm going to re, rephrase that. Um, socialism and capitalism, these specters that kind of hang over all market economy, um, there, there really doesn't have to be just one or the other, in my opinion. You can have this this middle ground where we say, like, we are here being socially conscious, aware of what, you know, economics can do if left unchecked. But at the same time, we're trying to do well. We're trying to grow mm -hmm. this thing. It's, it's not even a bad thing that, you know, people can make money, like, working right. for this company. Like, it's it's if they're doing good work, they deserve to be paid. Right. Um, but, you know, balancing the both of those things so that you don't end up with the CEO making, you know, a million times what the <laughs> the average worker makes and things of this right. bizarre nature. So, right. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much what we wanted to talk about with Kickstarter. Um, it's a really fascinating corporation. If you've never corporation, look what I just did there. Really fascinating company. Um, it might be a corporation. I don't know. It's incorporated, but uh, it's a really fascinating company, and if you've never kickstarted anything, I encourage you to go on there and look around. You can search by things in your city uh, or by your state, uh, and that will, you know, give you another interesting aspect of how Kickstarter works that we didn't even get to touch on today. Um, and I would definitely encourage you to go look at it and see what's going on in your area, fund some things. Thanks for listening to episode five in our season zero of Winning Slowly as we're still figuring everything out. All of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means you can mix this up, mash it up, chop it into little itty bitty pieces and feed it to your cat if you want. Meow. The uh, opening song was It's Fine, It's Fine by Daniel G. Harmon. And until next time, I have been Chris Kreitcho. I am and will be Stephen Caradini. We'll see you next time. <laughs>